A warning to our listeners. This podcast contains messages that might trigger PTSD or anxiety in some people. When Alexander Pittman left his house on October 16, 2016, he wasn't expecting to be gone long. He had on slippers, didn't take his wallet, just grabbed his dog's leash and a cell phone. I won't ever forget the day. I believe it was a Monday night. I took my dog out to go for a walk, and I was, I would say, maybe 100 yards or maybe 200 yards from my, my driveway, so, you know, still in my on my street and my neighborhood. What happened next was one of those moments that, in a flash, reconfigures a life. It redefines expectations for good or for bad. And though Pittman had experienced similar incidents, this moment indelibly imprinted upon him what it means to be Black in America. I was unarmed. I was not aggressive. I was not doing anything illegal or anything that looked illegal. I was doing something very wholesome, walking my dog in my neighborhood. And you could still fall victim. This is the Ohio State University podcast, a production of the College of Education and Human Ecology. I'm Robin Chenoweth. Carol Del Grasso is our audio engineer. Alex Pittman is today a PhD student studying education at Ohio State. Four years ago, when an SUV pulled up next to him and two police officers got out, he was a high school social studies and history teacher in Hollywood, Florida, attending to the mundane task of walking his dog, Marley. I honestly thought that they were going to ask me some questions like, have you seen this person? I honestly didn't have a initial negative reaction to them. They asked for my identification and asked what I was doing and, and where I was going. And so then it became very obvious that like I was the target of their investigation. If you're Black, you probably know where the story is going. Because Pittman didn't have his ID, so the officer told him to sit down on the sidewalk. I said, I'm going to take my phone out. I'm going to record this because I feel like you are harassing me. And when I started to take my phone out and turn it on to record, the police officer became irate. I mean, you could see it in his face. And he literally said, this is what the fucking problem is. All I asked you to do was sit down and you want to record it. The officer tackled Pittman, who had a leash in one hand and a cell phone in the other. So there was no way to break his fall. So it was literally him jumping on me and my face directly to the concrete. I mean, I had a black eye and a busted lip. My glasses were broken because this was a hard impact. I, keep in mind, I didn't know that we were about to, I didn't know that this had escalated. Like in my mind, everything is still okay from the standpoint of like, there's not going to get physical. So this caught me completely off guard. He spent the next two hours handcuffed in the back of the police cruiser, surrounded by seven other police cars. He had two thoughts going through his mind. Was his wife worried? And if he got out of this, what would he tell his students tomorrow in class? When we began interviewing Black students about their experiences with racism and how it has impacted their goals, we fully expected to hear about the microaggressions that they face, like being followed in the department store, or being overlooked to lead a class project, or having someone cross the street as they approach them on the sidewalk. These are all experiences that our students related to us. We never expected to hear the same story over and over again. Male and female students, their brothers and friends, wrongly accused by law enforcement, 
questioned and threatened for being in places where they fully belonged and treated in ways that white people aren't in the very same situations. And to be clear, these are all exemplary students on scholarship, maintaining high GPAs, model citizens. If they were being wrongly accused, what was happening to other members of the black community? Take Dimitri Brandon, a Weiler scholar in his senior year at Ohio State. So my dream is to become a professor in physical education, and I just want to be able to work with college-age students. Brandon, who is Black, never had an instructor of color until he came to Ohio State, and then he met Samuel Hodge. I took adaptive PE with Dr. Hodge. I just loved him as a professor. He didn't only care about us as students, but he cared about our at-home life and like what we did on the weekends. That was the first time I felt like I could relate to somebody that looks like me. That's my motivation. I want to be that positive role model for another African-American male. He grew up in a predominantly white suburb that wasn't immune to racism. There's a private pond, for residents only, in the neighborhood where he and his family live. If Brandon goes to the pond with his white friends, everything is okay. Everybody fishes. But... If I go to the pond with four of my black friends, we will get the cops called on us. And the cops always show up and they question us and they ask me for my address. They ask us if we're like trespassing. Do we belong to this neighborhood? Brandon showed them his ID. Sometimes the officers apologized. But he calls these experiences emotionally exhausting. And just that whole process of the cops really having to be called because we just want to go fishing at a pond. And we're just trying to be boys and have fun. It's happened three times now. And so I don't really go fishing anymore. And just like getting that taken away from me is just something that's like, okay. I mean, I guess, but it's just hard to go through. His mother has asked him to stay away from the pond. She worries that it's just not safe. And there's Nemo Johnson, also a Weiler scholar. I'm currently a fourth year at Ohio State University studying STEM mathematics with an overall goal to go back into the education system and help students have someone of color to look up to, especially at that high school level where you see maybe one teacher of color if you're lucky, or two really if you're super lucky. Johnson might once have considered himself somewhat inoculated against racism in his home suburb. But not long ago, while driving home from his third shift summer job at an Amazon warehouse. I literally had just gotten off the shift and the speed limit was like, it goes 50 and then it goes 35 and then it goes 25, apparently. I did not realize it goes down to 25. It was one cop that pulled me over. And next thing you know, I had four cops. You don't know what's going to happen in that situation. The first thing that came to my mind is like, why is there four cop cars here? I didn't even do anything but speed maybe five miles over the limit. Maybe. And what was even crazier than that specific moment is I didn't even know I was feeding. So I'm sitting here like, well, why do I have four cop cars? What's going on? It was summer, so Johnson had his car windows open. One officer reached through the passenger window. He had a flashlight and was trying to reach in like he was trying to look for something with this flashlight. Like they expected me to have some drugs or something like that. And so that was scary. With that, I was like, okay, I still have a family I have to get home to. My mother and my father. Johnson kept his cool. Didn't make any sudden moves kept his hands at 10 and 2 on the steering wheel. He drove away with a traffic warning, thinking about people in his shoes who never made it home. 
Over time, those experiences begin to erode trust and change behavior. Christian Hines, a PhD student studying literature for children and young adults, won't forget that her brother as a teenager was knocked to the ground leaving a store, even though he was clearly carrying his purchase in a shopping bag. So I've always had this thing that even carried on as an adult that I notice now is that if I'm shopping, if I'm if I don't have a basket in my hand and I'm holding something, I hold it all the way out in front of me just so they don't assume I'm going to try to put it in my bag or put it in my purse. But that comes from years of people following me around or looking at me suspiciously or standing at the counter, tracking my every move every time I come into the store. Her mother schooled Hines and her three brothers to avoid confrontation. Their job, her mother told them, was to act in a way as to not bring suspicion. Their job was to stay alive. That was never more true than when driving. If there's a cop behind me, I inherently, I'll slow down so they can pass by or I pull over. I don't like driving around police. I don't like driving past police. Those are a lot of things that I do because I know what can go wrong. And I consciously, and it sucks because I literally still do that today. If I see a police officer, I'll literally pull over or get off at an exit if I'm on the interstate, wait until they pass and get back on the interstate and then just keep going. People of color develop conscious and unconscious strategies for dealing with racism, says Don Pope Davis, dean of the College of Education and Human Ecology and a psychologist by training. When you think through the long-term effects that these behaviors have on people, it increases fatigue, it increases stress. Uh, You have the possibility of not wanting to trust anyone in authority. If you are a person of color, you have developed some kind of mechanism to protect yourself because if you don't, you can spiral into this mode of constant anxiety, depression, stress, and not to mention the cultural overtones of that in our society, given the health disparities that we now know more emphatically impact the lives of people of color in different ways than other groups in our society. Which explains why Summer Lucky, a PhD student in human development and family science, is a little fuzzy on the details of George Floyd's death. I definitely did not see the video because just where I am now, I can't. When I when stuff like that pops on the tongue, I can't watch it. It's too much for my mental health. And in order for me to have any hope in humanity, any faith in white people or in the justice system or whatever systems that we have, I just can't continue to expose myself to that. And it explains why Nemo Johnson didn't tell his friends about being pulled over by four police cars. I don't talk about those stories to my friends at Ohio State because I think those stories within people of color, we keep them to ourselves because we all know it happens. If we go and say, hey, I got pulled over, we don't have to ask, did you have multiple cop cars come over? Because it probably did happen. Or we know that they're experiencing microaggressions every day that we don't have to mention it. We just know it's happening. Why tell these stories? One reason is to develop understanding of the sizable obstacles that our Black students must scale to even become students at Ohio State. And also to underscore that, no matter how accomplished they might be when they walk off campus, and sometimes even on campus, those impediments are thrown down at their feet again and again. It's not for lack of trying by our Black students. PhD student, Summer Lucky. I am ashamed to say I thought, you know, if I could be this, 
image of like a quote unquote good black person, like, you know, white people won't, I won't be the one they have to worry about, but really that doesn't matter. Like you could tap dance all you want. And at the end of the day, you're still going to be black. And I guess it's coming to terms with who you are and people just don't like you because of that, because they just don't know. As instructors, administrators, teachers, coworkers, and student allies, we can do better to support our black students, Dean Pope Davis says. I suspect, given the full range of political realities in our societies, there will be some people who will be listening to this podcast and say, that can't possibly have happened, because their worldview is very different than this experience. It is that notion of you don't believe it until it happens to you, or you don't accept the truth of someone's story. And that in itself causes another set of resentment and antagonism and anxiety. When I say to you, let me tell you my story, and your first response cannot be, really? Did that really happen to you? You're essentially saying, I don't believe you. Uh, That couldn't possibly happen. My experience with police officers, my experience with people in shops, my experience is different than yours. And that's the point. (laughs) That cycle of continued aggression, microaggression, and then disbelief by would-be allies can have a very negative impact on any student's well-being and ability to learn. You can develop, in my view, some aspects of PTSD. I want to keep my distance. I don't want to engage either in the classroom or what have you. And it takes a keen eye to notice those behavioral activities or responses to find out what's going on and how can you be supportive. I think if you put this in an academic context, the faculty member, regardless of who they are, may need to ask a question, which is to be very explicit in saying, how can I help you, rather than saying, let me get you some help. (laughs) Because given their experiences, just opening up to a professor, teacher, fellow student, or even a counselor who would likely be white can be a big leap. And in telling that story, it requires an element of trust. And remember, in these fatiguing moments that you've articulated, trust is just about gone. Teachers and faculty need to create a space for those conversations by integrating them into the curriculum. You can make it a research project. You can make it a paper. You can make it a thought piece. You can read books and have discussions. So that's one way of doing that developing a set of pedagogical experiences that require students in classrooms to be more self-reflective. And the instructor must participate in the process with the students. If you do not have the capacity to self-reflect, you cannot engage in change. But the instructor also has to lead by experience. It can't just be an activity for the students. When you hear someone relate a story about how they've been the target of racism, become invested in them. These students don't need another person to say, I'm sorry that happened to you. What they need to hear is, I have an activist ally who really wants to engage in this and recognize that the response will be different from different students. And a student may simply say, who's gone through this, thanks for asking that. Let me get back to you. I haven't thought that far through yet because I'm still processing this. And then you need to say, please get back to me because I want to do something. 
You cannot underestimate how that continued support, true allyship, can impact a person of color. Christian Hines remembers attending a protest last summer. There were more white people at the protest and standing next to these people chanting, Black Lives Matter and it's not okay and they deserve to live or even going in neighborhoods in these predominantly white neighborhoods in these suburbs and seeing these Black Lives Matter flags or even talking to people in class or talking to people on the streets or people in airports saying, do you need anything? Or if they feel like something's happening, having them come stand aside, like, are you okay? Do you need assistance? And I think for me personally, that summer, seeing white people kind of not just step up, but step in line, like we see you, we understand. And this isn't just a black and brown problem. We're here. That made me feel better. Some people fear that that level of support won't continue. That piece is up to the rest of us. Our students are mostly hopeful and inspired, despite their negative and hurtful experiences, to respond in positive ways to a world that at times reviles them. Dimitri Brandon and Nemo Johnson want to be the teachers and instructors they needed in high school and still need in college. Summer Lucky wants to attack systemic racism in schools so that students of color can reach their potential. So when I think about our youth and I think about the generations that are before me, they need to have a fair chance. I want to be able to empower them to do that, to be able to be a change, you know, to decide if they do want to educate the majority on how to interact with them or if they really just want to forge their own path and aid their peers and their communities in elevating themselves. Whatever their options are, I want them to have that because they deserve that. Alexander Pittman, who appeared at the beginning of our episode, wasn't charged and at first told his high school students that he got his black eye after being elbowed playing basketball. He feared that the police officer who injured him might be one of his students' relatives. Pittman says that his Christian faith carries him, that what is meant for evil will be used for good. Because of the allyship that's being developed, because of a combination of so many things, people who do care, people who do love instead of hate, this is all going to be used for the greater good, for something positive. I I have to remain hopeful because if I don't, um, you know, there's people, my nephews, my brothers, my sons, my students, um, and my God who are watching me. And I have to remain hopeful um, because that's the right thing to do. And I truly believe that. He instructs undergraduate teaching and learning students, aiming to become a professor who can present a different perspective and inspire others. And in Ohio State's Office of Diversity and Inclusion, Pittman mentors 30 black freshman males, helping them surmount the obstacles to their higher education. Christian Hines says she is encouraged when her undergraduate students who are white say they want to be part of the change. These 20-year-old kids talk about diversity and equity and how Black Lives Matter and they want to be there for their students and show up for their students gives me joy because these are the people who will be in front of these black and brown kids. And looking at these other educators across the world who want the same things that I want, that fight for the same things that I want, and they are taking this time to create these spaces, whether it's virtual spaces, whether it's them writing books and talking about like historically responsive literacy or abolitionist teaching and knowing that I'm not alone. And I think that's a beautiful thing. As long as our students are regarded as anything other than the change makers and committed and brilliant global citizens that they are, 
we have work left to do, but at least we have them, our students, leading the way.